0: This is the TPM podcast, a show where we talk to the best and brightest across all industries and sectors from CEOs to COOs, marketing execs to service delivery and all in between. My name is Sean Price and I'm the CEO of Velez Managed Services and this is the TPM podcast. And on this week's episode, we have Mick Barry. Mick started out his life repairing, believe it or not, calculators and typewriters, a field engineer with parts in hand to fix those typewriters in rooms full of people to identifying how service delivery should work, looking at how best to optimise and run service delivery departments when you know how a field technician works. Now Mick Barry, living in Mexico on a beautiful resort mid-COVID and having travelled the world over, talks to us about what that journey was like, how the world looks today, how his company Octopian looks after people, how they identify risks. This is Mick Barry. Hey Mick, how you doing?
1: Great, right, good. Still busy even though it's Christmas week.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's not slowed down, has it? It, it really hasn't. Um, it's got to be a good thing. Whilst we can continue this way, it's got to be a good thing. So. Mick, you and I met a few years back, as, as most of us do over a few drinks. Um, for you and I, it was in Las Vegas at the SIA conference. Um, you're a man that everybody knows. You're a man that everyone respects and has had a, an illustrious career. Why don't you tell me about where it started. How did you get into IT? Where did that all Where did that all
1: stem from? Okay. Well, just before that, just background where I'm from. I was actually born. Uh, in Germany when my father was still in the military after the Second World War. And um, so he stayed on. So I grew up in, uh, as a military brat in Germany, Libya, for three years. And then he decided I needed an education. So he quit the army and got a job in Wolverhampton. So I ended up in Wolverhampton. And after I left school at 16, I decided that uh, Wolverhampton wasn't for me, given my background as a child. So I went on a one-way ticket to Australia on my own and how old, how old? uh i was just before I was 17 when i uh, i worked for some time in a factory in warhampton an automotive factory um and then uh in those days a lot of kids were, left school at 16. so um went to australia on the uh immigration you know if you're under 19 you got a one-way ticket for free as long as you stay for two years so took a plane to sydney and uh got a job in a warehouse unloading trucks come to find out inside the trucks were typewriters and calculators. So in those days, they were called office products. And to me, there was the beginning of IT. I mean, when you went to an office, all you would see is calculators and typewriters, and maybe an early copying machine. So I managed to wangle my way out of the warehouse and into the lab became a technician on calculators, typewriters, lab technician, and in the field. My first call was a prudential insurance in Sydney. There's like rows, you know, 200 typewriters, people banging away, and that we would do field, field repair or not swap out. So that's how I started in uh, IT. So I've been fortunate to see the whole evolution from mechanical devices to what we have on our desk right now. And I've been, wow. had the, wow. and I've worked and been involved with from accounting machines mainframes to mini computers i spent 17 years with data general in you know the, the exciting years of development of mini computers cut down from mainframes and these companies maybe an expat went to travel to many countries and lived in many countries through my tenure so that's how i got into by being a, a mechanical um, and then obviously mechanical Devices turned into electronic calculators. So I studied electronics and started to be a repair tech on calculators. So I've seen the whole evolution of, that was over 50 years ago. So I've seen the whole uh, transformation of IT firsthand over 50 years.
0: So you've, yeah, like you say, you've literally seen the whole, uh, I mean, we're talking a lot now at the moment about digital transformation. Mm-hmm. you've quite literally seen it transform into digital from, you know, a very analog status. That's, um, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when you were out there fixing typewriters and you mentioned mm-hmm. Prudential, obviously that was quite sizable. Mm-hmm. Was there any particular um, horror stories or interesting field experiences that you had back then?
1: Well, I can remember one where I was, um, this was past, there used to be a device called, you know, paper touch. Uh, you know, paper um, devices. And I was uh, used to have to, you know, work. I was trying to change uh, a belt drive, but I forgot to turn the power off. And there was still live AC. I mean, in Australia it's 240 volts, so 220. So there's still live in there. And I got my hands inside this thing and I got an electric shock, which blew me right off the chair. Okay. And here I'm about 300 people in this building. And there's me flat on my back. Unfortunately, nothing happened, but I recall that it an embarrassing moment. I've also been like everybody else, you know, plugged something into the wrong slot and smoke coming out. So, yeah, I've had my fair share of uh, horror stories <laughs> or very embarrassing moments. Okay, But. Um, the one thing that I remember when my first started is, you know, I had a lot to learn and I was like the youngest person in the company, uh, and also being in those days, what they called a palm in Australia. That was another hurdle you had to overcome. Because um, in those days, I mean it's a lot better now. But in, in I'm talking about the late 60s. A lot of Australians resented com- people coming from England, because they were subsidizing it with their taxes. Okay. So the only way uh, it took me about six to nine months to figure out that um, the only way to succeed there was to just act like them, speak like them, eat like them and drink like them. Okay. And so I remember, you know, long distance calls used to us a fortune. I remember but right after a year, speaking to my mother, on a, I'd call her maybe once a week, once every two weeks. And she was saying, Mick, I mean, you don't even sound like you're from England anymore. Well, you know, one thing I didn't, well, I never had and didn't ever want was to have a Wolverhampton accent sorry to anybody from new hampton who's listening to this <laughs> uh, so i had to shred all that i had to actually just change my whole uh, way of dressing way of talking and way of socializing so i made a, a big point at that point that's helped me today is to try and divorce myself for, from expat communities
0: so and i think that's
1: been key, been key, key to some mm-hmm. of my successes the fact that everywhere i've lived in every country I've always tried to embed myself in local society.
0: So, I mean, that ties, that ties nicely into where you are now. Obviously you, you're in Mexico. How long have you been in Mexico and how did that come about?
1: I, I, um, I've been in Mexico for over 20 years. I'm a Mexican citizen. I travel, I have dual citizenship, UK and Mexican. But I travel on my uh, Mexican passport. I live here by choice, could live in many countries. Um, but it, it, I, I started here when I was with Data General. I'd been sent from Australia to a, a project in Venezuela, which I stayed for two years. Then they sent me to Boston, and then they decided to acquire a company in Mexico in um, early '80s. And then I was sent to Mexico to do the startup of the acquisition, manage the acquisition and the startup, primarily on field service. And uh, from then I went off back to, I got transferred back to Boston, then to Puerto Rico, lived in Puerto Rico for five years. And then I bought, well, I, I helped start a company, which was sort of sold. And in the end, I was just looking for a home and decided that uh, I'd pick Mexico. And uh, because our, the, the company we had, head office was in Miami and from Cancun to Miami is only about 50 minutes an hour. So, um, and logistically, a lot of people think I just moved here for the the beach and the sun. Well, I, well not really. I've had, had, I've had more than enough of that in my life. But logistically, Cancun, because it's a, one of the largest tourist destinations in the world, from here you can get, well, before COVID, you could get anywhere. You can go to, even have flights to Moscow, Turkey, anywhere in South America, 39 destinations in the U.S. And so I used to travel so much it became a very good base to um to travel from to um, where i was doing doing business
0: it certainly has more advantages than wolverhampton uh, as far as commuting goes then
1: yeah but it's just i mean nothing i mean you know I i have two brothers My my one one of my brothers still lives in wolverhampton in the same house family house and uh you know um there's some really nice parts outside of Wolverhampton in the countryside, and uh, it's changed a lot. I mean, it used to be part of the industrial revolution. It was, it wasn't very pretty, but it is now. It's, it's just because of my upbringing. It just, you know, I, I always had this thirst for travel, so that was uh, one of the motivating factors to to leave. Okay.
0: So. You know, you've had some uh, great successes in various um, companies over the years. I mean, you were part of Decision One once upon a time, and and, uh, ESP, both you know, big names in the industry. Mm -hmm. How how did those come about, and you know, what what were you focused on in those companies?
1: Okay, Um, with Decision One, um, I was actually at that time. I had my I had a my own, cons- I mean, I, first of all, I, I took a 10 year break. I, I retired for 10 years and went sailing for 10 years. And then after that, uh, it it took up a lot of money. So I decided trying to go back to work. I already had my retirement, which i was fortunate, you know, that uh, I got to spend 10 years not working. So I decided to go back to work, open a consulting company Of and I approached all, most of the people I used to have interaction with before. And when, I, had my own company. I was a Latin American contractor for D1. There were a lot of people there, still do. And uh, so I said, oh, yeah, I'm back in, you know, back on the market I'm consulting. So I did some consulting, them uh, with some problems they had in Latin. And then they offered me a job to come and um, uh, help manage their international partner network. I knew the CEO and, um, So I got hired to, I was there for a year and a half um, and uh, um, enjoyed it. I mean, I still have a lot of friends there and um, been involved since then. Not now, but uh, before with um, ESP, I got involved with D1. So yeah, that was a very enjoyable experience. Then, Then I just, well, I was, I became, through D1, I became great friends with the, uh, the owner of ESP, who since passed away a couple of years ago. So he came to me and said, you know, you know, he wants to put a footprint in Latin, Caribbean, can you, uh, can you come on board and help build the infrastructure um, in Latin? So it was a repetitive process of something I've, you know, done before. And um, so then I, uh, built up the network, uh, they achieved a lot of business, uh, grown, um, I mean, they're heavily into the aviation industry, yeah. but they also, they have a lot of other business divisions that's still operating in LATAM with the same team. So uh, it, it was a, um, it was a, uh, a, a good experience. Uh, the reason I, I, I moved on from there was because, um, as I said, I was very close as a family friend, and professional friend of the owner. And when he passed away, I decided I'd, uh, mostly wouldn't have the freedom and the flexibility I'd had before. So, um, I w- and Octopian happened to be a customer of ESP. So, um uh, so I ended looked,
0: up, yeah,
1: about. yeah, yeah. So I ended up, so, and this so has been a very, I've been here over two years now, and uh, I'm fortunate, especially the way the, the life we live, I right know I really enjoy working here and enjoy the atmosphere. And the same, once again, we, they didn't have an infrastructure in that them. So that's, that was first year was spent building that. And, um, this year's we spent, you know, growing the, the customer base.
0: So what does people do then? What's the, what's the sweet spot for the company and, and, you know, how have you helped that grow? Well,
1: put it this way, most, we have some large direct customers um, on a global basis, but uh, what I've bought is we're, we've we're, we're the go-to company. well like to think we are. In some in some cases I know we are um, the go-to company for TPMS working out of Europe or the uh, United States. That's that. That's when I started. You know, in. The goal was, okay, build infrastructure, get the footprint, offer global, so the corporation as a whole can offer global solutions, but then to justify the network and the expense, it wasn't such a difficult task to go through SIA and where I've been going for about seven years and say, hey, you know, I'm back, you know, here, Octopian's a very strong financial company, been around a long time, and, you um, you know, take a good look at your partner network that you've got in LATAM and take a look at us. And uh, not that, that as, as you as an SI board member, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, how successful that has been. Okay. Yeah,
0: of course. I mean, it, it's been said by many that LATAM is notoriously difficult to do business in, uh, notoriously difficult to mm. operate and, and get things done in a timely manner. And that's where I guess you, you really shine, being in, in situ effectively.
1: Well, first of all, you know, I've been to every single country in Latin America and Central America and every island in the Caribbean that has an airport and some that don't on a boat. But, but um, the, the key is to understand the culture. You know, I lived and breathed the culture since 1981 when I was first transferred to Venezuela, picked up a language. It's not only a language, it's a culture. Not every country, you know, each country has its own nuances, cultural wise, working hours, labor laws. But I've been fortunate, been around that long, that most of the people I'm dealing with, even down to the, the engineers, service desk people, project managers, I know personally. I've met them, I've worked with them, I've had dinner with them, gone to football matches. So I've had this luxury of developing this relationship over many years. And I tend to, when I can to do business with people I've done before. So I have a, you know, I can I have a screen that streams tickets. I can normally look at a technician's name and oh yeah, I know him or I remember him or you know. So that's I, mean, I can tell you an interesting story where I I was asked, well, you know, the business has grown, growing and growing, but you're travel budget has gone from a huge amount of money to zero, but the business has grown. So why all the travel? Well, the answer to that question is that if I hadn't traveled so much, I wouldn't know so many people because there's a lot of people out there, companies now sprouting up. They seem to sprout up on a very frequent basis where it was X company, now X global. And I call them the, the, the Rolodex. You know, it's a guy with a Rolodex. Now, you know, sometimes that's going to work, OK? And sometimes they start like that and they can build themselves up. But um, we get business, too, where somebody will come to us, not only here, but before with, oh, Mick, I got this disaster in this country. Can you help? And I just, OK, I just want a ticket for you and help you. And that will, that normally tends to end up in a, a bigger relationship. So we, a lot of business. I mean, I, well, you know, David Coleman, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. He's a good friend of mine. And I met him on LinkedIn one night, maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago where he posted that he had a server down in Guadalajara. So I answered, I said, I can fix that. We fixed it. Got it fixed the next day. And then a few months later, or maybe less, he moved the whole network of, and it was a substantial piece of business. In Mexico, to where I was working, and, uh, so that relationships developed over time. You know, people move on from one place to the other, but normally the friendship and relationship maintains. Is there? So.
0: Well, I say I think this is an industry, particularly where you know, like many places, it's not what you know, it's who you know.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: there's an awful lot of that, like you say, Rolodex businesses that pop up, mm-hmm. and everybody touts that they're global. Um, mm-hmm. I, I like to say you're only global with an asterisk. Right, everyone's got their areas where they're strongest but you know and I think a lot of them they end up it's it's somebody that leaves one company and then they think they're going to start their own and yeah they can subcontract a few tickets here and there but when it comes to crunch time and actually delivering good quality service you can't do that without an infrastructure you can't do that without a team and in-country presence and it's one thing to you know be the subcontractor add your 15 20 margin and, and then subcontract it out again and you purely a broker and we see a lot of those you're right uh, you've mm-hmm. got to be able to deliver value and above all else you've got to know you've got to know how people operate you've got to know the culture you've got to understand how your client is in in country x versus your partner versus your in-country field techs mm-hmm. and understand that that uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, somebody in Latin mm-hmm. might only just be coming back to work, right? Mm-hmm. There's, I, I grew up and I lived in Spain for almost 10 years. So I'm, I'm familiar mm-hmm. with the Spain culture and speak the same, you know, I speak fluent Spanish as well. And if you go with the mentality as so many do that mm-hmm. every country operates the same or every country has the same mentality and work ethic, mm-hmm. you're, you're never gonna succeed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I said, um I've lived in the States a couple of times, lived throughout throughout the region. Um, so, and also it's a, it's a case of um, setting a expectation level right with the customer too. I mean, you might want 24 by seven in a certain location. And I uh, you know, said, so well, maybe I'm not going to sign up to something that I'm not really confident I can deliver. How about next business day? And the world we live in today, a lot of this work we do right now is scheduled anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, it's a case of knowing what you can deliver and where and how. But Latin America has improved a lot these days than it was in you know twenty years ago. I mean, uh, for the most part, you can deliver um, a global product throughout throughout the region. It's only when you get off the beaten track that you. I mean, we work in Mexico in some. Places where you shouldn't be driving at night time, for instance, some places we shouldn't even be driving during the, the daytime. But um, you know, we, we we get it done, and uh, so you, even even when we look at uh, a product offering in Mexico, it could could uh, differ from region by region of the country.
0: We, we try we try not to focus heavily on what's going on in the world right now around COVID because it, it's it's talked everywhere by everyone and everyone's got their own valid opinions on that but you know how is octopian as a company and and you i suppose as well from your position in the company how are you looking after people be it your service desks your engineers you know what's what steps have been taken because obviously there are some areas where you just can't get a tech to site and there are some areas where it's a little bit more relaxed what what efforts is the company making to make sure that people are taken
1: care of okay well the first thing is that we won in the middle east Uh, We've won awards by uh, two or three governments for, um, they offered benefits to subsidize your payroll. I guess something similar to the furlough program in the UK, well we turned all of that down. Uh, We maintained 100% of our payroll and uh, we know no employees uh, were laid off. In fact, due to our growth, we've had to hire more people like yourself, okay? What do we do um, about the technicians? What well what we do is we, uh, we comply with the PPE requirements for um, for the customer that may vary. We've had some where the engineers had to have a PCR test and prove prove that um, he's had it and take it to site. Uh, we, there's some is just a mask. Um, but we we're complying with the PP requirements. For every customer and like maybe every ticket we get now you know fill out this form fill out a questionnaire so covid um well also we, we get a note scenarios where the, the customer will say well it's a hot drive swap for instance they just drop it off at the security or we, we we will do it ourselves okay a lot of these data centers have, have their own it people so we see quite a few tickets where we just deliver the part to site and the customer takes care of it doesn't even want us in our facility you know they, they don't want anybody in their facility that's not 100 necessary so and then when we're inside we maintain the social just all, all the reg- rules and regulations that are posted just around every wall around the city so, but COVID has um from operations point of view has not really had uh a significant impact or a major impact on the way we do uh, way we do business okay.
0: do you think it's going to impact at all how services are delivered going forward or do you think there's going to be a time in the near future where
1: it's business as usual well good question i think some customers might think well, well i've survived the year without having a technician in my facility why do i need that you know maybe i'll just need a parts only service and i've actually had a couple of those requests okay but hey you know mean. You know, I'll I'll take I can do it. I can swap out a power supply, I can swap out a hard drive, um, but ah, you know, system board, yeah, maybe I'd engineer for that. So I, I can see that coming up on the horizon, where uh, you know, these data centers where they do have IT people, they might take over some more of the the basic tasks that we would normally do ourselves. Okay, uh, that, that's how I. Uh, that's about the only thing I can see on the horizon that uh, might differ because. Um, to me, as I said, uh, you know, end of life, I think it it's, Will be, t- I think you've got the first phase of end of life when you're, when you're in end of OEM support, then you got the end of life. And now I can see a post end of life market where people might just keep the stuff running, given the financial impact that so many companies are, um, are experiencing so. You know, I'd see two 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 phases of end of life. I expect to see a lot of times we get a contract end of life might be one year, two years. Uh, in general, I can see those going out for three or four years.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, from from our perspective, and like you said, octopians grown during this period. You know, and as you said, so have we. And I think you're mm-hmm. quite right there. It's almost it's creating opportunities certainly coming into the next year, it's creating opportunities for 2021 that perhaps weren't there before. And I think it's also um, slimming down the number of Rolodex companies as well, is what I've noticed. Because when you are reliant on nothing more than passing tickets backwards and forwards, there's, there's no solid business there. And once that sort of dries up, you know, it's, it's leaving those who are a little bit stronger behind to pick up the mess effectively.
1: you said in a recent acquisition of curvature by park place so i also think there's going to be less companies uh it's a very crowded market right now extremely crowded and i think that 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 will change and i think you'll start to see uh less i mean a lot of companies as they look to their data center environments what they're going to do I think you're going to see a lot more doing a lot more due diligence on who they do business with Um, and uh, maybe narrow the the scope of the field engineer so much i mean what what i do for instance um, you know obviously we do a lot of smart hands and and there's webex calls Mm -hmm. so i'll put it on my screen and i'm not really involved but i like watching it you know i can still work and watch it and i get to see what's going on I get to see the customers normally on the line. I get to speak to him if I'm going to speak. I can watch the quality of our service. I used to ride shotgun. I used to be well known for riding shotgun, with their fees wherever. I just but because I used to be one, but it's a good way to meet the customer and also work with the engineer. It could be a bit overbearing at times, but I try to make that as painful as less painful as possible. And um, but now I'll 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 sit on a on a. Um, especially on weekends, we do a lot of, you know, data center stuff on installations. We just did a large one in Puerto Rico. Um, so I'll sit there for, and I'll watch it for a couple of hours. And it's, I mean, I, first of all, I find it interesting, but it's a good way, too, to um, to get to know what, you're, what your team is actually doing in front of the customer out in the field. OK. So,
0: well, it is, because ultimately, you know, this is a business where your engineers in the field are who represent you. It's It's one thing for you to sell that service and you'll have the companies that will sell it and then mm-hmm. throw it over the fence to, to operations to deal with. But I mean, if you can keep on top of that and actually maintain that and ensure the quality, then, you know, that puts you head and shoulders above 90% of the industry, I'd say.
1: Mm-hmm. Plus, there's also times translation. Um, you know, it's it, sometimes I might end up having to translate a bit because the engineer is not 100% uh, fluent in English, mm-hmm. then we have challenges where the English the engineer speaks in some of these countries is not the same English as a guy on the on the uh, support desk out in Asia or somewhere there. And so, that, so sometimes I'm engaged in translating English to another form of English, <laughs> but, uh, and that all helps, you know. I mean, uh, sometimes a lot of people see they're surprised I'm on these calls, but. As I said, it's normally it's sitting there in the background. I mean, unless it's maybe a weekend or an evening, um, it's sitting there in the background, and I just not all of them. But um, I mean, as I said, because I used to go out and visit customers, and I'd normally go if there's a project, if there's a large project going on, like a rack and stack, and I went and did one in Rio. Well, I'd go and spend a couple of hours there. You know, it was like a week project, but I just go out and meet the customer, see the engineers, and I could do it that way. But but can't do that anymore. So I tend to um, participate in some of these uh, webex calls to see what the service is all about. What we're actually what we're actually getting paid to do. I mean, you've you've
0: been working from home now for quite some time, despite obviously COVID. You travelled previously when you had to, um, mm-hmm. and you, you sort of mentioned it earlier about you took ten years off to to, to sail. Yes, mm-hmm. it's to some great places, I assume. Yeah,
1: well, what happened, uh, this company, Comlassa, that uh, was built, I mean, two guys started it and then they asked me to join to run the service. It was a typical of guy who put up the money, the sales guy and then the field service guy. That's how we started. And um, the company grew over 11 years. We had over 700 direct employees and about another 500 contractors throughout Latin time, Caribbean. Started up in the aviation business for Eastern Airlines, and they went bankrupt. And we were working for Pan Am, and then they went bankrupt. But then, then American Airlines and United took over all of Latin. and they were the dominant U.S. carriers, Continental. So we became their service providers uh, under umbrellas from companies like D1 and other companies. But so we built this infrastructure throughout Latin America to do field service. But then all of a sudden. Cisco's, Silicon Graphics, Dell, HP was selling product into Latin America, was, was ending up in Latin America, but there was no warranties. So we became one of the pioneering warranty providers for OEMs throughout Latin. And that just grew and grew and grew. Just, we, we never had a business plan. It just grew and grew and grew. And I spent years just traveling around. I didn't really want the partner network. I wanted to have our own company in every single country. And had to being on our own had the freedom to do that didn't really have to justify it to anybody if we could afford it we did it Mm -hmm. and uh without our knowing that became our biggest asset was we had over 25 legal entities and then ups came in and bought the company and the reason they bought it is because they were losing out to fedex and dhl on large accounts especially with dell because they could only offer offer domestic they couldn't offer anything in, in latin and so they they bought the company not for what we were doing. They just bought they bought the company for the legal um, entities. And but after selling the company, uh, they asked me to stay on as, to work with them. That only lasted a couple of months because I'd been too used to at that stage doing what I wanted to. Plus I've pretty much had enough. I mean it was um it just grows so fast. It was pretty stressful, and I had a ended up with a very strong non-compete. I couldn't even, I wasn't allowed to work in the IT business period for many years. Wow. Uh, Wow. But I, I was compensated for it. So I bought a sailboat, which is always like something I wanted to do. And, uh, yeah, I bought it in, um, Fort Lauderdale. I went to school in Key West to get my basic sailing diploma. Then took off for the Keys, Cuba I was in Cuba, and then ended up in Cancun, Belize for a couple of years. So I was based in the last three years. I was based in Guatemala because I can actually drive from here to Guatemala to where I had my boat, for 15 hours. Um, and uh, so yeah, I spent 10 glorious years of doing nothing but uh, sailing and hanging out at marinas and. To me, I got fortunate because, you know, I retired, was retired at 51. I thought, I didn't think I'd ever come back to work, but my father, when he retired, he, um, you know, after a while, he was traditional 65 and, um, you know, he had a lot of things he wanted to do, but he got ill. And, uh, so a lot of his retirement was very difficult. Um, so I decided, well, I'm just going to enjoy this, um, because you never know, you know, I mean, without without your health, you know, retirement can be a pretty miserable existence. So I don't, I have no plans to retire. And uh, the sailing, I, I got it out of my system now. I'll never buy it. I mean, you know, I was really sad the day I sold it. But I was fortunate I got a good price for it. But um, I'm just glad I had the, the, the chance to do it. And I have no intention of, I have a lot of friends in Cancun who have boats, so don't need my own anymore
0: you're not missing out on
1: yeah. it. well i really missed the time i had It was great um but it became a huge financial burden as well especially hurricane insurance marinas it was a it was a sailboat but um i had some really wonderful times on that great so um yeah um i miss it but uh you know you never know what's in front you but i'm i'm fortunate right now just that i do something i still really like doing i mean it's rare where I have a day when I wish, Jesus man, I'm not going to do this anymore. I, I have some moments when that happens, but oh, for sure. not, not complete, but not complete days. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So what I mean, obviously, you and I know each other. We're connected. I get to see all your photos and everything that you're putting up online, and, and some of the wonderful places that you get to go and eat and drink and, and everything else out there. It looks spectacular. It really does. So you know, what what does work life balance if there is one? Look like to you now i mean i always talk about work life integration right? I, I don't think there's a balance especially when you're doing things at the levels that we that we do so i look at it as an integration what, what what's that like for you nowadays because you've done the retirement and you've come out of the retirement to go back into work
1: yeah um well first of all the the mix i'm i mean, I, I mean uh, you know i have three children who um 47 48 50 years old now nine grandchildren and uh, I've all, I mean, I mean, I dragged them from one country to another country, to another country, God knows how many schools and stuff like that. And so they all grow and none of them have re- relocated period. One lives in Brazil, one lives in Austin, Texas, other one in Brisbane, Australia. And they brought up their families without taking them, Or they all still live in the same house and the same uh, place uh, for many, many years. And they said, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, they, they so I've always been accused that I, you know that I've always taken work as a main priority. Uh, well, that came because um, when I started working, it had to be, I had to make money, okay, and if travel was part of making the money, tra- so be it, I like travel. Um, how do I handle it now? It must be not very well, I mostly spend too much time uh, working uh as, as my kids do i'm like dad don't you ever stop well i do stop i mean i i have it better than most i can get out and about but um you know i mean aside from working out exercising um I, you know I, I can only take so much of netflix so uh and i try, try to avoid the news so i'll end up because of the you know we have the three shifts, we do some shifts here in Mexico, then there's a guys in Dubai are on shift. So I can uh, normally, um, you know, I mostly do work a lot, maybe till one or two, have a couple of few hours break, and then work into the evening. So I'm mostly working more hours now than ever. But I mean, as I said, for the most part, I enjoy it. So to me, it's a good, good way of switching off from what's going on in the world. Okay.
0: I, I agree. And you know, it was only, um, was it uh, this weekend was the first ever Boris announcement I've watched. And mm-hmm. f- for me, it was, I'll get the information filtered down, I'll get to understand what's going on. But what I thought, you know, I'll, I'll watch one. And it is pure horror stories that's being that's being mm-hmm. told. And I'm very much of the opinion that you know, what you read and what you digest, you know, will play on your mind and will, will sort of direct the senses. And I, I sent out a company email back in August that said, you know, we at Velez's have made a, a management decision not to participate in this recession. Um, purely from the perspective of trying to have a positive mental attitude towards what's going on in the world. Because otherwise, if you stare at that brick wall, you're going to crash into it and you need to provide some positivity to those around you. Uh, You know, you've obviously had, you know, this career that spanned almost every country in the globe, it would sound, and, and, you know, some illustrious companies as well. What's one thing in terms of people management that you found as you've grown uh, throughout these organizations? What's one thing that you would apply to any business that you go into today
1: from a people perspective? Well, first of all, I'm a firm believer if you're going to hire somebody... Uh, that you're going to trust? Um, empowerment, okay? I mean, I've always been, when I had my own company, and I when we be able to, come, I mean, most of the places where I've worked, um, including what I know, I mean, you know, I'm expected to be able to make a decision uh, without having to go to ask, you know, not all this bureaucracy. Uh, i report to the two owners of the company but I also expect people in a team, well, that they're only empowered if you let them be empowered, okay? Um, and I've, I've been fortunate that um, just about everywhere I've worked, I've been given a lot of leeway, a lot of authority, working on different time zones. You know, a lot of times you can't wait for somebody in another time zone to approve something. So I've always, you know, guess what, I'm just going to do this and pay the consequences if it Somebody didn't like it. But I hope that answers your question. But the biggest thing is you got to you got to trust the people in the team. I'm a very much a team player. I, I was um, actually when I, started, I didn't prepare for this. I was thinking about this maybe that's something nice. But you know I used to play uh, football when I was a kid in England. Mm-hmm. Played a bit in Australia, and some in Venezuela, and just like field engineering or even on a football pitch I wasn't I was never the best field engineer and I was never the best football player on the team never not by a long shot okay but it's like a captain of a football team these days you know I still watch not as much now but I used to be very passionate about football it's rare that the captain is the best guy on the pitch okay I mean his role is not to be the best He's, he's his role is to get the best out of every other guy on the team, okay? So I always consider myself as that. If you're working as a group, my job is to make sure that everybody can succeed. That's my role, okay? And I'll hold up the trophy at the end of the match. No, problem. no worries about that. <laughs> but uh, um, but the, uh, the, the thing is too, is that, um, you know, teamwork is just, no, no matter what walk of life you're in, working as a team, I think it's always been my strength because I I realized from even when I started, even as a calculator mechanic, man, there's a lot of guys a lot better than me, a lot. So they became my friends, and uh, they helped me impart their knowledge to me. So
0: it's not rocket science. What we do
1: is not rocket science. It's all a matter of um, human behavior and attributes, customer service. You know, that's the most. I think that's the most important thing. I think that's most important asset I've had. Over the years is the fact that I've always managed to not always, but in most cases being managed, managed to satisfy a customer and gain his trust. And also because a lot of times, you know, if, if you have a contract and nothing goes wrong, well, they have no idea what you like. A lot of times you get me- measured on how, how you manage a crisis and an escalation and then the customer will say, wow, they did that very good. OK, I mean, you know, the budget goes out the door. Everything. You just gotta get this thing fixed and the customer fixed. And those type of customers where you've had escalations and you're successful end up long term customers. Okay? Well,
0: that's what we talk about quite a lot, is that you know, particularly in our industry, you never get a customer call you up because they're having a great day. They're only ever calling you when something's going wrong. And it's mm-hmm. it's how you deal with that, how you react to that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, it sounds like over the years you've obviously absorbed a lot from, like you said, people who were smarter than you and, and who knew more than you, and you've been able to map technical knowledge to empathy with a customer. So it's the best of both worlds. You're able to understand what the customer's going through, whilst understanding the the difficulties the technician has perhaps.
1: Well, I can remember I was in, I uh, lived in New Zealand. I got transferred from Australia to New Zealand, and. uh and then just one day, oh, by the way, Mick, you're the, you know, we've got, we've got too many texts now. Uh, you're, you're, the, you're going to be the branch manager. So I, yeah, okay. what? Well, because well, you've been here the longest. Okay, I've never been a manager before in my life. Okay, uh, and but in those days, it was. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't have a college degree. I don't. I have very few academic qualifications. I mean, that was because just my. Upground, you know, in, in the Midlands industrial area, sixteen that normally leave school and go to uh, work in a factory. Um, you know, I, I wish I, uh, I definitely wish I had one. And mostly at times, I should have maybe spent some of my retirement getting one. But in the end, I've managed to survive without it. But uh, I definitely, you know, um, you know, academic qualifications. I believe in them, obviously, degrees and and type of stuff. But I've also had experience where some of the most highly academic qualified people that have been with me have not been that successful when it comes to being in the field or with customer relationships that type of thing okay so um, but the world has changed now I mean you know I mean where I in my days no, no I could go to um, well first I've never really actively looked for another job most of most of my time it's somebody who approached me and um, in those days nobody would ever ask you if you went to college or whatever it was more they they would give you uh, an aptitude test on the interview you go and see if you can figure this out or I remember to get in from the warehouse to the calculator lab they just took it all apart and told me to put it back together again okay well I got close now I thought man I I didn't do it, and uh, no way I'm going to get this now. And after about an hour, he said, "Mick, you're in." It's a, it, you know, nobody ever gets. We, we make sure that nobody can actually succeed. Okay, it's just how close, and they they watch your attitude, your logic on trying to figure out how to put this thing back together. And that that was an interview in those days. Okay, yeah, so,
0: so, so we, we talked about it briefly a, moment, uh, a little bit earlier on uh, with the part place and curvature sort of a merger, mm-hmm. yeah. how, how do you see that playing out? Is that something that you think is going to be good for the industry, bad for the industry and different opportunities for everyone all round? How do you see that playing out?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, I know one company very well and the other one I don't know very well. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of the, well, we're both owned, if I'm correct, they're both owned by VC companies, I believe, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I just, I just see it as two venture capitalists sort of getting together and hey, let's create the biggest monster that we can. Um, from what I've seen afar, some yeah, you know, they have different strengths, work in different fields. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, hopefully, hopefully it's a positive positive thing because, um, you know, as I said it goes back to what I see as a shakeout, uh, and it's it, I mean it happened. Happens in nearly every industry. It happens in um, it happened in the aviation industry, where there's a lot of mergers and you know there became less airlines to fly on than before. I was watching a program about, about hospitals, where, where a lot of these hospital companies now getting together, one's buying another one acquisitions. So I just see it as a normal trend in the industry mature, maturing. The, I mean. To me, the, you know, the more strong TPMs are out there is better for the industry as a whole to compete against the, the OEMs. So, I okay. mean, um, I haven't given it a lot of thought about how it's going to end up, but that, um, given the amount of money that's involved in mean, the, the two companies, I mean, they it, it must be the will be now or are now the largest TPM in the world, I, I would assume. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's just a lot, I, of-, I a lot of friends it. of Cuperture because I was friends because I was involved with some of their the acquisitions going back. From, I used to do some work for Olympic, and Olympic got acquired by SMS, and then I was friends with SMS, and SMS got acquired by so I've, I have had friends in, uh, in uh, those those companies over the years, so I've seen the the uh, the acquisition trail, the the
0: the roll up as it has yeah. gone. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of conversation about w- where private equity stands in you know the world of TPM. Obviously, there's there's an awful lot of privately owned companies, mm-hmm. but uh, you know those backed by private equity or venture capital is obviously much greater mm-hmm. now. And Octopians mm-hmm. privately owned,
1: I assume. Yes, it's 100% privately owned enterprise. It's part of various divisions, um, but it's uh, it you know, we have two main offices, one in uh, Dubai and um, and one in Berlin, okay, so, yeah, which, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's a very, it's one of the, well, not a selling point, but a justification of coming through us is, is a is a financial status, you know, of, of, of the company, okay? Uh, obviously, the, you know, um, it's important. I mean, if you're, gonna, if you're relying on a company to handle a big data center full of product, you want to make sure that they they they're strong enough to make the invest upfront investment that uh, that we do. Okay?
0: Yeah, no. Absolutely. And we make
1: a substantial. You know, we've made a substantial investment this year on spare parts inventory, and continue to do so. Okay. And then
0: I suppose finally, you know, looking back from, from typewriters all the way through to data centers today, you know, if you could pick one moment in your your career that was you know. The, the most proud moment of your career, what, what would that be?
1: Well, very hard to say one. Um, there's been quite a few. I mean, I was very proud of my contribution to the success of Comlassa. I mean, it was a, you know, it was, it was, a ended up a big outfit, substantial amount of revenue, and it was sold for a, for a very good, good sum. So that was mostly. Yeah, the outstanding part of my career was to be part of a group that when we took a very, very small company to the size it was. Um, And it was big news. It was on CNN. I still got the Wall Street Journal, CNN, you name it. It was big news because UPS had just gone public and they decided to spend their their money on acquisitions. And so they chose us. OK, I have a various I was sent to Venezuela because working for data general and the government had a huge issue with um uh with the quality of the product that had been delivered those days you would ship on a ship date whether it worked or not and uh there's 33 mini computers scattered across venezuela delivered to the oil company huge issues and i was sent there to resolve that and um i managed to get the whole situation resolved we managed to upgrade all the equipment and uh that pretty much set my career um, on the path that ended up where I am today. The fact that I managed to go to another country, didn't speak a word of Spanish in those days. And then I decided to stay there. Okay, after that, I decided to stay there and grow the company. So, I mean, there's, there's I could rewrite quite a few stories like that. Um, but I guess the only, the, the one, if you, if you were to um, look at a start and finish uh the 11 years of commerce was um, really exciting so even my like that years at data general it was you know i'd never know where i was from one day i could be in europe i could be in the states i could be in brazil um and it was for the most part really enjoyable and i go back when i look back i said how, I mean, how lucky can you get to doing something for 50 years that you year like okay and still do okay
0: Well, it's a hell of a career and, uh, you know, I think you've you've enjoyed some fantastic moments and met some great people and been some incredible places. So uh, there's a lot of people that would never get to experience uh, a tenth of what you've been able to achieve in your career. So it's incredible. And, you know, congratulate you on that.
1: Well, I think thanks. But I mean. A lot of relationships, I know people that, you know, we we both know and, and. especially SIA, I've, you know, I've maintained these relationships for years, no matter where I've been socially and, uh, and work-wise. And also saying, I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. I mean, I, I, mean, I said, well, I, you know, my children have been successful and uh, my son in Brazil, he, he he's, um, works for one of the largest, well, he manages one of the largest global uh, travel and corporate travel agencies uh, in the world he's been in Brazil for over 20 years, won't, won't, be, won't be leaving, he's married, we have a doctor and the family's wife's a doctor. So, um, fam, family is also, um, despite the, you know, the, the child of moving from here to there and everywhere, uh, they've all grown up and uh, a great family too. Now, pre-COVID, obviously, I, I would spend, I could travel, I mean, Austin's only two hours from here, or I'd be in Brazil when I wasn't traveling, uh, on the road I'd mostly end up spending time in Brazil so that's something I miss and hopefully uh, sometime in 2021 we can get back back to that
0: yeah that'd be nice that, that's that's what we're all hoping for um, you know a lot of people glamorize business travel but the reality of it is it's not glamorous at all and getting stuck in airports is no fun and but it's it's been one of those words you know what, I actually do miss the window view of seat 4 a
1: <laughs> yeah um, well the thing is I mean to me the travel was never such a hassle because you know I, I do a lot of guys we go on the road Monday to Friday I you know they, they dash home on Friday night mm. well if I was traveling to a place I hadn't been to before could be you know somewhere in the states or it could be uh, Paraguay I'd always stay I'd come back Monday mm. and I'd spend the weekend wandering around exploring Going to a football match, getting to know more about the country than just the office. I just spent five days in, and that uh, that helped me a lot on the way. I mean, a lot of a lot of times, you know, work for a company and they say, Well, hang on, why did you stay? And I said, Look, Don't worry, Saturday, Sunday's on me, you know, the plane ticket costs the same. Said, well, so, why'd you stay? I just go, I could be at Ascension or I could be in Montevideo and I just wander around the streets, off the track, market, go to some bar, a few beers or some museum, but that also helped. And I, when I see people going on these business trips sometimes I said, don't, don't just work. You've got to get out there and, and see more than your work environment because you're not going to get to know a lot about a place. I mean, every office, if you go to Dell in Mexico City, you might as well be in Dell in um, Austin, Texas. It's, it's all the same, but the city is different. So that's why I've always had that uh, tradition of rarely going home once the uh, once the job's finished.
0: Yeah. That's the fastest way to burn out is, is, you know, in and out of the country. And it is. you see, airplane window, hotel room, hmm. office, bar, hotel room, back in the airplane. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's incredibly repetitive and you're right. You know, there's no way you can get to know the location without going out and about. Uh, there's a lot of countries I can say I've been to, but have I truly been to that country? No, I've, I've simply been, door-to-door, gate-to-gate, hotel-to-office and back again?
1: Well, I've even been to places like, um, you know, like Brazil or Argentina because I'm there over the weekend. somebody somebody in the, uh, in the office or some, one of the team members say, Hey, Mick, what are you, you, know, Mick, what are you doing tomorrow for lunch? Mm. I said, Nothing. I said, well, why don't you come around to our house? We'll have a barbecue. So you meet, you meet your team, you know, your team member, you meet his wife, the children and, uh, then you get to know more about how they live, you end up in conversations of what, you know, how they have to struggle I and mean, it's not a lot of people don't earn enough to have a quality life in like that. Time. Mm-hmm. So you get to learn so much more about how you can help actually your team members I and mean, you learn a lot more about mm, maybe, maybe these pay structures aren't too correct, maybe we should have some more benefits and stuff like that. Okay, But you normally only to get to hear about that, if you're in their family environment where they live, so I've had some fantastic times in uh, friends and employees, team members' houses over the years, meals, or go into a, one of their school football game, whatever. Okay, the, the socializing aspect of the people you work with to me is—I'm um, pretty known, pretty much known as a social animal—and <laughs> uh, and that part of it is to, to spend as much time as I could uh, with, with the group. Uh, around me you know as I said the company I I believe firmly in the company I'm working for right now um have a good team we've a proven track record now since we started it well we had a proven track record outside the Americas before I came uh we have a great one now I'm very proud of what we've achieved in that and um you know as you see we're more active now on social media and that that's starting to pay off Getting more inquiries. Oh, wonderful! Well, look,
0: thanks very much, Mick. Appreciate your time. Uh, what, what time you got over there right now?
1: Uh, right now it's eleven, eleven, eleven
0: thirty. Okay? Oh, it's uh, four thirty PM here. It's time for a time for a whiskey. I think it's been a long day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, Sean. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, hope to see you face to face soon.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks, Mick. Really appreciate this conversation.
1: Okay. Well, thanks a so lot, and uh, let's be keep in touch. Okay.
0: Take care, mate. Bye.